Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Otello Stampaccia. He's the founder and managing director of Omega Funds. Otello started Omega in 2004, and now it's on Fund 6. Based in Boston, Omega has a billion dollars under management and invests in a variety of biotech companies. Early stage, later stage, American, European, oncology, immunology, rare disease. There's a lot going on here in terms of different fields of science and different kinds of business challenges that are posed at different stages in a company's life cycle. Otello, as you'll pick up immediately from his accent, was born and raised in Italy. He got his PhD in molecular biology, then figured out what he really wanted to do, apply his scientific curiosity to the world of investments. Readers of Timmerman Report will have seen Otello's series of articles on the COVID-19 pandemic. He's been consistently ahead of the curve. His writing has been a pleasure for me to edit and publish. He even manages to write with a sense of humor on occasion. And Otello, hey, if you're listening, could you ease up a bit on the use of parentheses? (laughs) In this conversation, we talk about Otello's early life influences, the beginning of Omega Funds, and the trends that make this the best time ever to do what he does. At the end, he and I ruminate a bit on luck, how important it is, how much of it is truly blind luck, and what kinds of fortuitous happenings are more the result of preparing oneself to be in the position to catch a lucky break. He's a character and has a lot of fun. Now, before we get started, a word from our sponsor. Today, it's more important than ever to connect, to work together to discover new vaccines and advanced drug development. The biotech community makes connections at partnering conferences. Now, I don't normally travel to international events in an ordinary year, and I'm definitely not traveling internationally this year, but I am excited to join BioEurope as it's delivered digitally. On October 26th, I'm moderating a panel on innovating the partnering future with Marianne DeBacker from Bayer, Paul Stoffels from J&J, and Melanie Saville from CEPI. We're going to talk about COVID-19 vaccine development. Join us by registering at BioEurope.com and you can use the VIP code LONGRUN, all one word, to take $100 off. I'll repeat that. Use the VIP code LONGRUN, all one word, to take $100 off. BioEurope.com And do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you're trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services. My business representative, Stephanie Barnes, can tell you about advertising opportunities on this show. Tell me about your company and why it's a good fit. Luke at TimmermanReport.com Now, please join me and Otello Stampaccia on The Long Run. Otello Stampaccia, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Truly a pleasure. So to start this show, Otello, I thought it would be fun to describe a scene. Uh, you'll remember this. Uh, it was February 25th at the Mass Bio Conference Center in Kendall Square. Uh, you were on stage for a panel discussion at this Climb to Fight Cancer fundraiser, uh, part of my you know, fundraising initiatives for Fred Hutch. Uh, Ushani Scarlett organized this event. Uh, really grateful for her uh, doing that. But here I was, I was sitting in the front row, probably 10 feet away from you. Uh, and we did this little wave 
thing. I, I don't recall us shaking hands. We definitely didn't do this like double cheek kiss thing that y'all do in Italy. Uh, but I was like, <laughs> I was really worried about Italy in the news at the time. And I was actually worried about the fate of the climb and our, our possibility of going to Nepal. I wasn't really saying any of that stuff, but it was, there was a, there was a tension uh, be beginning in the room. Like people weren't really sure exactly where we were on that date. What's your recollection of that date? No, I remember. Uh, you have an excellent memory, by the way. Yeah, you were sitting close to me uh, in the audience. I think you were on the first row. And, and I remember, I said, should I cancel going to this? Uh, I do remember uh, proposally staying away from, you know, shaking hands. And people thought I was a little bit insane. But uh, yeah, I think the news from China was starting to come in. Uh, I think, you know, Bob Nelson, he had already been quite vocal about it. Uh, there were some initial cases in Italy, uh, you know, it was just the beginning and, and, you know, some people more than other maybe are, are, you know, prompted by, you know, whatever episodes they see. But I, I do remember that was probably one of the last times I've been in public. To be yeah. Honest. Well, that, that was my last business trip. So that's a part of the reason it's memorable. But um, the other thing too, is that I, I was watching you on that stage and uh, I was, like I said, I was worried about Italy and I realized that you had this deep connection to Italy, being from there and staying in touch with people there and being aware of the news. And I just thought, uh, I need to know what your thoughts were on the emerging pandemic, because I just thought that you were more plugged in to what was happening in Italy and that that was a preview of coming attractions to the United States. And so I asked you to write about it. And I gotta say, uh, listeners of this show, if you have not read Otello's articles, uh, go do yourself a favor, Google Timmerman Report and Otello. That's all you gotta do. There've been seven articles now since early March. And I mean, these are brilliant, data-driven, human, they're funny in spots, which is kind of hard to do in writing, <laughs> and really consistently ahead of the curve in warnings about what was coming here with COVID-19. So I'm really proud of these articles, and I hope you are too, Otello, even though, you know, I, I wish that we had been dead wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's bittersweet. And, and I don't know if I, by the way, I don't know if I ever properly thanked you because, you know, I, I don't do this often, <laughs> I think probably ever. But, uh, you know, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald who said, you know, you don't, have, you don't write because you want to say something. You, you write because you have something to say or something like that. And, and, and you caught me at a very good time where I was feeling increasingly impatient. I, I had fought with my family in Italy for weeks uh, that, you know, this is happening. This is bad. You know, be careful. You know, we had started stockpiling at home. And I remember when you sent me the email, um, it's actually funny. I, I, I've been keeping a diary. I don't know if people do this. I highly recommend they do this, but I've been keeping a diary since kind of early February because there's so much going on and just writing down stuff. And I remember writing in the diary after you, you sent me that email asking me to, to, to write this. And I said, God, you know, another thing I got to do. <laughs> but then I realized, okay, this is important. Uh, a lot of people are taking this, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, from a complacent point of view. And, and I wrote something and, and yeah, you know, um, I don't know if it's made an impact. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I felt he had to be said and, and uh, you know, we took it from there. But again, I never properly thank you. Well, I have heard from plenty of readers who said that that was a, a real wake up call when it ran the first one in early March. And there have been others too. 
that that have been very well read. So um, I mean, I do Thank think you. I do think that um, they, they have uh, had some impact. Okay, so let let's rewind this. Uh, find out a little bit about uh, you as a person. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where where are you? I know you're from Italy, but can you tell be a little more specific? Like where did you grow up? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, I was born in a you know small town, large village uh, in Puglia, which is the heel of the boot, so southeast. Uh, it used to be Greece for a long time, so we're part of Magna Grecia, the part of the colonies, I guess. So there's, there's always been a bit of a Greek affinity. Um, and then it became part of the southern uh, part of the kingdom of Naples. So there's a strong Spanish tradition there, which, uh, you know, I might just take that out of the way. Uh, explains my first name, which is, you know, a bit of a tragedy for those of you who like Shakespeare. <laughs> um, or, or Verdi in my case. Um, yeah, so basically the first boy in, in the family, so I'm the eldest of three boys, gets the name of the grandfather from the father's side and said, that's what happened to me. Uh, so, you know, small village about, you know, 10, 15,000 people, uh, extremely boring, that's my recollection. Um, uh, and I was there basically until university. So, um, yeah, so I was born there and then, uh, did my university in the north? I wanted to be as far away. <laughs> well, 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 wait, wait a second, Otello. So, like, this is interesting that you had this kind of blend of cultural influences, uh, more than just Italy. There's Greece. There's some Spanish influence. Uh, what, is there anything like significant about that that, that you think uh, influences you to today? Um. Yeah, I've been I've been an immigrant many times over. Um, I think the first time. So the Greek part is more cultural than anything. So I would say culturally, the most important thing for me was going to, to high school, to the high school that I went. And maybe it's worth spending a second. The high school system in Italy, at least, you know, the time that I went, uh, which is now a few years ago, uh, is quite different. Uh, we, we had a relative specialization in high schools already. Uh, and my parents insisted I went to something called the, whatever, Lycée Scientifique, Scientific Lyceum. Okay, so high school, starting in about, what, ninth grade or age 14 or so? Is that what yeah, you think? Yeah, so I finished at 18, so I must have been 13. I, I went a year ahead to school because, I guess, my parents wanted me out of the house or something like that. But <laughs> So we, yeah, started at 13 and finished at 18. Yeah. Okay, and you started specializing uh, in science that early? Yeah, so uh, it, it is a high school, but it's a pretty broad curriculum. Uh, I have to say, this is one of the... You know, looking back, and I have to acknowledge, I, I freaked out when you asked me to be on this. So I, I looked in, you know, some of the other people who've been before me. And I have to say, our school system is quite different. So, um, so I studied Latin in high school. I have philosophy classes. I did French as a foreign language. So I actually never studied English. Uh, we did calculus. Um, and probably three things were very, you know, important for me. Um, so I, I've always been a pretty good student that, that's, you know, uh, perhaps a bit obvious, but um, three teachers really important for me. My Latin teacher was was incredible. So you know, I, I don't know if any has studied Latin, but it's an extremely logical language, and the teacher really pushed us on critical textual analysis, which I found invaluable the rest of my life. The second, probably most influential teacher was my Italian teacher, literature teacher. Uh, she was a quite a character. One day she just walked into the class and said, okay, today you guys are writing a dissertation. The title is, to think is to say no, discuss. 
And, and I just never forget that day. I started, okay, you know, what does that mean? And, and literally for two hours, I started writing what ended up being a 15 pages thing. And she looked at me like I was an absolute idiot. Um, I was going to say dissertation to a teenager sounds like, oh my God, this is going to be horribly long. And where do I start? Yeah, so again, our school system pushed us to do that uh, from, from, you know, I would say intermediate school. So not, not as crazy as it might appear to, to an American audience, but I just never forget. And I was in a very particular phase of my life where I was being quite rebellious against my parents. Uh, my mom was a school teacher and my dad was an accountant for the local hospital, but he was quite involved with the local Christian Democratic Party which was starting at the time to show, you know, pretty evident signs of corruption. So, you know, massive fights with my father. So that, that you know, that dissertation title really rung a bell. And then maybe the... Wait, wait, the, wait. You, you, you had fights with your father about politics? All the time. As I'm a still. teenager. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, I don't have a hard time getting into fights, at least on, on politics and stuff, <laughs> as, as anybody who knows me probably can attest to. But, you know, you know my father was a pretty severe parent. Um, so he, he was the kind of enforcer. My mom was really keeping track of our studies. And, and I was the eldest of three. So, you know, I have to say decidedly lower, you know, middle class upbringing. But it was very important that our education was, you know, uh, you know, done well, that we were, you know, good in school and so on. So, so, but, but, you know, whenever my father started to ask me, okay, you know, in a few years you become eligible to vote, uh, which was more or less during, you know, the final years of my high school, um, you know, you, you need to come and help me out with the party. And I said, dad, just, just no way. I mean, I just can't stand what this party stands for. Um, so massive discussions. That's really interesting because, you know, most times uh, kids follow in the footsteps politically of their parents. Um, well, okay, so you said you specialized in this school pretty early on, or that was part of the, the focus, but, but you actually describe what sounds like a pretty well-rounded, you know, humanities liberal arts education that you're getting yes. in, in high school. Yeah, no, the third teacher probably, I guess, in a, in a very positive fashion, was responsible for kind of something that happened later. So... So we had a science teacher uh, and every year was a different subject. The second to last year before, you know, finishing high school, uh, we had a genetics class for the whole year where basically we did fruit fly genetics. Uh, you know, I was, I guess, 16, 17. Um, and that really was, you know, just an eye opener for me, right? You can, you know, you can look at the color of the eyes of the fly and understand Mendelian inheritance. Uh, was truly fascinating and and you know up until that moment i was kind of leaning towards physics i remember reading this incredible autobiography of einstein i said wow this is super cool but then after the genetics class i said okay you know this is this is it so so i went to my parents and uh you know we were starting to think about universities and i said uh, and and obviously my parents wanted me to be either you know do law school or medicine because those are the professions that guarantee you kind of a job in the south it's either that or chief of police, but, you know, chief of police was already my uncle. Um, so I said, you know, I want to do genetics and, and biology. And they thought, okay, um, well, you know, this is what you want to do. <laughs> Go ahead and do it. Which, you know, in retrospect, this was an incredible moment. Again, we, we really weren't well off. Um, again, one thing also to understand, the, the, the cost of university in Italy, it's a fraction 
of what it is in the, in the US that we didn't have to get into debt to send to university, but still they had to pay for my you know, food and lodging, which wasn't cheap. And they're and probably that, wondering, you know, how much are you going to make as yes. a geneticist someday? Yes. yes. And in fact, both my younger brothers went into finance and accounting. Uh, and now it's ironic because now I do venture capital. Um, but, but so they let me go there. And just to tell you how, you know, clueless we were, we show up in Pavia. So I picked Pavia. It's in the north of Italy. It's close to Milan. It's a beautiful university town. Uh, I had never been before. But the department was quite famous. Uh, there were some Italian geneticists there that then eventually moved to Stanford. So Luca Cavalli Sforza was one of them. So, you know, great, you know, tradition. So we show up in September and, uh, you know, the classes started later in like October, November back then. And, and there was no accommodation because basically people, you know, through the summer, they basically, you know, went to find some kind of lodging and so on. So I remember scouring the city for days um, and that's where kind of my Catholic upbringing came handy because um, I guess our parish uh, priest knew some uh, church there that had a student dormitory, like seven or eight rooms. So that's where I ended up for the first year. I mean, it was freezing. <laughs> I remember studying for organic chemistry in bed because I just couldn't get out of bed. It was too hot, it was too cold. Um, and then, you know, the first year, and this is another probably important moment in my life, uh, I met some friends uh, who were in some of the colleges. So Pavia is structured very much like UK universities. So you go to the main university for classes, but then there's colleges where people live. So food and lodging is there. And there were two historical college in colleges in town. Uh, they were, you know, built from separate papal families, so very old families. And one was Ghislieri and one is Borromeo. Some of my friends from, you know, the first year were in Ghislieri, so I applied. And the second year, and I miraculously got in. Uh, and now I'm um, with 240 people. It was co-ed, uh, but, you know, separate, you know, sleeping sections. Uh, and they were all super smart across all disciplines, you know, physics, math. Uh, the mathematicians are really interesting people, i got to tell you that. And that was one of the best times of my life. They had uh, exchange programs throughout Europe. So I spent a summer at St. John's in Cambridge. Um, it, was, it was a fabulous time. I really enjoyed it. So you're, you're focused on genetics. Um, yes. Over this undergraduate time or, or uh, master's period, how did your interests begin to morph or, or across broader areas of biology or biotech? Yeah, so I did a two-year uh, kind of research. Uh, so during, again, it's different probably now, but back then it was a four-year program. And the last two years, you still go to classes, but then you work in a lab as an undergrad. So I did work in a lab that was uh, pretty connected to biotech. Uh, they, they had a lot of grants from, uh, you know, uh, plant genetic companies. Uh, the lab was working really on chloroplast genetics, rice, and so on. Pavia is one of the three regions in Italy that, that has the highest, you know, rice production. So the lab was already connected to more, you know, applied sciences, so to speak. So, you know, I, I have to say, uh, I didn't, I, I did publish, I think, a paper maybe. I wasn't spectacularly good at doing experiments, but it, it was a good experience. And then after the undergrad, I kind of took a year off. In Italy, you have a year where you call it like a specialization. Basically, I got loosely, I stay loosely affiliated with the lab. 
and uh, you know, went four months to Paris with an uh, Erasmus exchange program. I did an incredible course in Greece. We were 120 students, five Nobel Prizes, 25 faculty. So I spent a year kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next. And then as I was coming back from the kind of year, uh, two of my classmates from the same you know, college were going to move to Switzerland. Uh, one uh, was also going to do a PhD in genetics. The other one was in a different kind of school in dentistry. And I said, okay, you know, PhD, that's interesting. And um, started looking into it. I, I applied to Geneva as well as they did. And I got in, I also applied in a few other countries. These were also years where being in Italy was a little bit tricky, um, especially in the South. I mean, I wasn't in a region, you know, uh, we had our own little mafia. My uncle was chief of police. Uh, we had some- <laughs> you, don't mean a, you don't mean a literal mafia. <laughs> no, we did actually. So, so each region has its own kind of, uh, you know, whatever, mm, mafia-like association. So, you know, Sicily has the mafia proper, Calabria has the Andrangheta you know, Camorra is in Naples, the kind of whatever, second layer mafia we had was called Sacra Corona Mita. I have to say they weren't nearly as bad as any of the others, but you know, they were there. And it was just a period of massive uncertainty in Italy. The Christian Democrats had fallen apart and it was a massive power vacuum. And, and anyway, it was just messy. And, you know, my uncle goes his, his, his police car blown up one night and I say, okay, you know, I just, I just need to get out of here. Oh, okay, okay. So Switzerland, by contrast, sounds pretty yes. good, like a place to go study. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, you know, stability, French, you know, Geneva speaks French and that's, that was still, I mean, my English at the time was extremely poor. Um, and, and the lab that I wanted to go to was, was working on, on, you know, chloroplast gene expression. So there was some connectivity there. So I ended up in Geneva and, you know, I think it was a great time. They were, you know, paying me by, you know, American PhD standards incredibly well. I remember these amazing journal clubs with the faculty discussing, you know, the latest papers. My first journal club was, the, was on uh, Craig Venter and, and CDNA before he studied human genome sciences. So, so really a fabulous time. I'm not sure my PhD advisor got as much out of me as I got out of the PhD program, but it was, it was a great place to be. Uh -huh. Who was your advisor? Uh, Jean-Philippe Rocher uh, is quite the authority on plant molecular genetics. I think he's retired now. He's consulting for some, uh, uh, I think, Chinese universities. Yeah. Okay, so you go through and you get the PhD, molecular biology, University of Geneva. Um, mm -hmm. but then what? What's, what's your next move? Right, so... Um, yeah, before I tell the next move, maybe I should spend one second because, you know, kind of the second year of my PhD, I kind of realized I, I wasn't going to stay in academia because, you know, two left hands. Uh, I, I really wasn't that great at the experimental side of things. I, I love reading the papers, you know, thinking about the experiments and so on. When, when I graduated, my PhD advisor actually said that he actually regrets me going because now he's going to have to go to the library and find interesting papers by himself. <laughs> but, but, but so I started already the kind of second or third year figuring, uh, and Geneva has a five-year PhD program, so it's quite similar to the US. Um, so the second or third year, I started looking around, okay, what else can I do? Uh, I did uh, a few intellectual property classes at the University of Geneva Law School, and I decided that wasn't for me. Um, and then I think probably year three or year four of my PhD, one of my classmates, um, Sundi, was a, an amazing person. Her family knew 
she is still an amazing person. She's a McKinsey now, but her family knew um, these, these other family who had started this little merchant bank called Index. Uh, and at the time it was called Index Securities. They were thinking of, of becoming a venture firm, uh, which is now Index Ventures. It's incredibly well known in Europe and in the US. And they were looking for somebody with some biology background to help them look at companies. So I said, okay, you know, could, could you introduce me? So she introduced me. They interviewed me and they kind of gave me a consultancy job while I was finishing my PhD. And I like that. Um, then I remember, uh, you probably know her, Kate Bingham from SV. Yeah. One day came to Lausanne in, you know, she's about 45 minutes by train from Geneva. And she gave a seminar and she had just started at SV uh, and before she was a, uh, in a consultancy company. So I, I went there, I went to her seminar and I remember really kind of spending five minutes with her and say, okay, you know, tell me about your job. And I really like what I heard about venture capital. So, and then she, she actually gave me some incredible advice. There's a couple of ways you get into venture capital. You either come in super junior and then, you know, it's a bit of a hard slog or you learn skills somewhere else and then you come back. And so, okay, what else can I learn? Um, so I was also, I don't actually remember how that happened, but I was consulting for Credit Suisse First Boston in the London office. Uh, they were looking at some private placements. This is now, you know, the late 90s. There's a Neuer Marx starting in Germany and so on. And then eventually I remember I was still finishing my PhD. I had about six to nine months to go. I was going to say, like, you've got these consulting gigs. You're being paid well. Like, did, did you, like, have a fancy sports car and, like, drive a girlfriend no. around or something? And it like, no, no, this, no, no, no. this doesn't sound like the typical graduate school experience. No, no, I wasn't swimming. I mean, I actually never had a really fancy car, to be perfectly honest. I'm not that kind of Italian. But, but no, I was doing okay, to be honest. Certainly by, you know, American PhD standards, uh, I, I was happy. Um, and then okay. I remember really a thing that changed my, you know, one of the many things that changed my life, actually. And, and there's some, maybe some method to the madness that we can talk about later. But um, I, was, I was at this conference in London because there was a IP, whatever, biotech conference. It was by a partner in Europe, I think. And I was sitting next to this guy, he looked Italian, he, his name was Italian, and, and his name tag said Goldman Sachs. And, and like, you know, the most naive person on the planet, I turned towards him and said, you know, what do you guys do? What are you doing in biotech? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy looks at me like I got three heads and I said, who is this idiot, right? And, and you know, we started talking and it was uh, Andrea Ponti who then eventually hired me, actually shortly thereafter, he was uh, the new head of healthcare at Goldman and, and little did I know they were looking for somebody with a bit of, you know, science background because they were seeing some biotech companies starting in Europe. So, so long story short, they fly me to London again a week or so later and they offer me a job. And, uh, and so I started Goldman. So this uh, is your first job out of um, graduate school. Okay. Yeah. And it's investment banking. Yes. And I was what, on the M&A corporate finance team. Yes. Okay. So how did you get started? What did they have you do? <laughs> um, you know, I was really an atypical hire, right? I didn't go through, uh, you know, the analyst, uh, you know, training program. So I just got, you know, parachuted midway. I still remember, I think it was the third or fourth week. Uh, they staffed me on the Elan Nurex merger, uh, which, you know, I had no idea, literally. I mean, I remember one of the discussions uh, with the legal counsel. I forget who was on the other side, maybe Morgan Stanley, but you know, what do you guys think about caps and color in the merger agreement? And, and somehow I think my VP had missed the plane. I forget what happened, but 
I said, yeah, great idea. Let's talk about it after the lunch break. <laughs> and, and during the lunch break, I tried to learn what the heck is a cap and a collar in a merger agreement. So, so you know, it's really sink or swim. I have to say I loved it. Uh, I'm not sure I was very effective for them, uh, but I learned a ton. The culture was truly amazing. This is pre-IPO. Um, and, and literally had managing directors staying up until, you know, late at night showing me stuff. And, and this has really stayed with me, the, the kind of ownership of the culture of the firm. I think it was really impressive. So I was there for a few years. Um, and then, you know, uh, lost quite a chunk of my hair <laughs> as a result. And I actually found out that I don't need to sleep a lot when I was at Goldman because <laughs> there were some days where literally we wouldn't go home. And then I decided, okay, you know, maybe, Maybe I can now think about doing what Kate is doing and go to try to do some investing. And long story short, there was one bank in Switzerland who had a biotech fund and the, one of the portfolio managers had just left. I kept in touch with, you know, the senior portfolio manager. And I said, okay, you know, it's been, you know, three or four years at Goldman. I wouldn't mind giving the go to something else. And so they hired me. Um, and this you know, was which firm? This was uh, the immunology fund, Lombardier. Okay. Which I have to say was a disastrous experience for me. <laughs> why, why was that? Uh, a lot of reasons. I probably shouldn't go into it, but, uh, but uh, you know, not a great fit at, at multiple levels. Also, I would say, uh, you know, I was, in, I was supposed to be in the Zurich office. And uh, so my German to this day still sucks, but I said, you know, if I'm going to be in Zurich, I better learn some German. So I asked them, could you send me to, you know, Munich to do a German class for a couple of weeks. And like the third or fourth day, uh, they said, well, I get a call from one of the senior partners at the bank who said, well, you know, uh, we just fired your boss. Um, would you be interested in taking his place? And, and, would, this, uh, and this, would this involve like actually managing money, like being the, yes, the portfolio yes, manager? Yes. Yes, exactly. Which I had no idea about. To and and with like real money, like a lot, right? Oh no, real, oh, no. we're talking, uh, I think at the time it was several billions. Absolutely. So, so unfortunately I said yes. Um, and, 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 you know, again, I spared the details, but you know, a number of people who were, you know, obviously very loyal to the previous boss were still with the fund. Uh, the advisory board, uh, I found out later on that basically my, you know, former boss had tried to spin out the, spin out the fund. Uh, as a separate entity, and that's the reason he, he go let go. And but everybody else was still there. Everybody who wanted to spin out was still there. And then there was me. So you know, uh, it was very complex, very messy. It didn't work out. And then I think on nine eleven, actually, uh, I basically left. So I remember actually walking out of the meeting uh, where I was, you know, essentially being fired, right? And 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 I think the first plane hit the towers. And I'll just never forget that day. Every single minute of that day, we had literally been in Long Island for a wedding a few days before. So it was, you know, quite a shocking development. Yeah. So so and then you know I'm on gardening leave, and I get a call from the head of asset management of the you know firm that I was kind of leaving. They say you know. I know you're not with us anymore, but there's this big firm coming to present next week. It's called Alpi Invest Partners. It's a huge fund of funds. They want to hear about healthcare strategy. Uh, everybody else is unavailable. Would you mind coming to this meeting? <laughs> and again, I still remember, you know, I, as you can imagine, I had conflicting emotions, right? So, well, you just, you know, we just split up, right? And you're asking me to come to a meeting, but you know, okay. 
and ask, okay, you know, what are you guys talking about? Can I take a look at their portfolio? At least I'll come, you know, because I, I, I try never to go into a meeting unprepared. Uh, and, and I think one of the guiding lights uh, in, in studying French has been, you know, learning from, you know, Louis Pasteur, the luck favors the prepared mind. Yeah. So they managed to get the, the portfolio composition. Uh, I mean, Alpinvest is a Dutch firm. I don't know if you know many Dutch people, but, you know, they're incredibly straightforward, uh, to say the least. Um, so I walk into this meeting, I put together a few slides, um, and, and basically I told them, that, listen, your existing healthcare portfolio is not that great. Uh, I think there's good reasons why that's the case. Here's my thoughts on it. Here's, you know, a couple of ideas. The meeting ends and, and I go back home. And then a week later, I get this letter that kind of HR forwarded me because I'd been addressed to the office, thanking me profusely for this meeting and, and really looking forward to uh, building a relationship between the bank and Alpinvest. You know, a bit embarrassing for me. So, you know, basically write them back and say, listen, thank you very much, but I'm no longer with the firm. You should contact the head of asset management. And then somehow I get a phone on my cell and said, well, you know, why don't you come to Amsterdam? Um, and so they fly me to Amsterdam, they offer me a job. And that was truly amazing because uh, this is a large firm at the time they were managing, I think tens of billions of euros, um, all private equity. And, and they asked me to manage the healthcare portfolio. Great, so I was one of the partners, but, but then they also asked me, why don't you give a hand to the fund the funds team? But that, you know, just back up here. This sounds like it could potentially a, a a better cultural fit, you might say, because what you you <laughs> gave was sort of this like withering assessment that they're not doing so hot, and you know, some people, some cultures might take offense to that, think that's rude or yes. insulting, and actually, no, they uh they valued your you know candid, unfiltered opinion, and did uh, did that kind of resonate for you? Like, geez, you know, these these people, I might yes. be able to work with these people. Yes. I, so my wife is half Dutch, by the way. <laughs> so, so no, I think, I think, you know, to be perfectly honest, I didn't have a better offer. So I would have taken it anyway, but I think culturally there was a big fit because, um, you know, you know, I still remember being fairly shell shocked in the first investment committee meeting in, in Amsterdam, where, I mean, people were really laying into each other, but, but still making very fact-based arguments. So at the end of the day, you know, it is unpleasant, I gotta tell you, it's not for every day or for everybody, but, but being truth seeking as a behavior, which I think a number of your, you know, previous, you know, guests on this show has said, I think is essentially what we do as, as investors, right? So I think I had a great time there and, you know, basically the task of looking uh, into all these healthcare funds, they basically ask me, you know, can you put together some kind of framework on what works and what doesn't for healthcare venture funds? So I look at decades of performance data, you know, investment styles. And, and that was probably the most important thing that then led me to what I'm doing here because a couple of lessons, um, you know, there's always cycles in ventures, right? Ups and downs. And it's incredibly difficult to be a consistent performer as a manager. But the one commonality I found in, in all these healthcare managers, particularly biotech VCs, uh, you know, all, most of the big successes were products, um, companies that develop products. And, you know, it kind of makes sense now, obviously, right? In, in good markets, you can go public when the cost of capital is low, and then you can fund your own development. When the markets are not as good, you know, there's always a bid from pharma companies and that was already evident back then. Now we're talking in the early 2000s. 
If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers such as Ruth Etzioni, Alex Harding, Annie Iserson, and David Shaywitz. It's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for companies with multiple readers. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe and show your support for quality biotech journalism today. There are plenty of people in biotech venture capital who make lots of money uh, by selling portfolio companies to big pharma or taking them public and liquidating stakes that never actually develop products or meaningful products. They still do just quite fine for themselves. Um, but but you, you have an emphasis there on, on the end product, and I want to I get to that. That, that kind of leads us to the founding of Omega, really. I mean, you're there at this private equity firm, fund of funds. It's the early 2000s. Uh, you know, the, the human genome is all over the news. Uh, yep. A lot of companies getting started, uh, more and more kind of general investment interest, I think, coming in. But it was also like <laughs> a crater in the market <laughs> uh, with 9-11. Exactly. So you had that going on. How, how did you end up starting Omega there in 2004? Yeah, so, so kind of 2002, 2003 was just after the dot-com burst, right, in the U.S. You, you probably remember that. And, oh, and yeah. Right. So for venture, there were actually two or three years that were extremely tight. And we will see on the main, you know, direct investment side, we will see all these, you know, great companies, later stage with what looked like good products. And then we will look at their cap tables and say, wow, you know, there's been a lot of investors we invested early here who, who are going to have a really hard time keep investing because their funds are old and out of capital. And as, again, luck would have it, I was sitting in the same office as the head of secondaries who, who basically they were buying limited partnership interests from other limited partners. And something clicked and I said, well, you know, we want to invest in later stage, you know, product-based companies. Those companies have shareholders, sometimes several shareholders who are unable to follow in the next round of financing. And back then those companies needed to have another round of financing. Why don't we put the two together and, and you know, try to buy out those shareholders and, and give them some liquidity and then we can keep investing with some agency, right, in, in the future financing. And everybody thought, wow, what a great idea. How big is that market? <laughs> and in, to be honest, I really didn't have a good answer. Um, and, and, you know, Alpine was managing, I forget, 20, 30 billion euros at the time. So they weren't going to carve out something to try it out. So I think, uh, I think a few weeks before my wedding, I went to my wife and I said, well, my future wife, and I said, listen, you know, I really want to try this uh, and, and I'm probably going to have to do it outside of, of App Invest. And, uh, and, you know, you, you try tell this to your future wife, you know, a few weeks before your wedding, basically saying that you're going to quit your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is becoming an entrepreneur. This is a classic entrepreneurial story. I've got an idea and it can't really happen in the existing structure. Um, I, I believe in the idea and my own ability. And you're at a, how, how old are you at this point? You got some experience, of course. Yeah. So, so I was 34. I mean, still young, I have to say, mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, again, I married obviously an incredible woman, and as everybody who knows us will attest. But, but you know, her answer was, I had to say, great. I and mean, she said, listen, you know, you're fairly employable. You got quite a few degrees. Uh, you know, give it a try. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, you're going to get another job. And so, 
So I started doing that. The first fund was really small. So I was doing a couple of consulting gigs on the side just to pay for the travel and whatever legal expenses. And I found, you know, a few assets that, uh, you know, some firms didn't want to keep on their books anymore. Actually, the first deal was with Atlas Ventures. No, no, now, wait here. Were you still in yeah. Europe or did you move to the U.S. as part of this? No, I was still in Geneva back okay. then. Yeah. So, so the firm actually did get started in Geneva. And uh, so, you know, put together the first vehicle. I think it was $50, $60 million. Pretty much just me and, and from my living room, actually. And you should have seen the faces of the lawyers when they came to sign the contracts and they said, wait, this is a residential building. I was like, yes, that's my house. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Um, and then, you know, we grew a bit. Um, and, and again, as luck would have it, the first kind of portfolio had a couple of very interesting investments. One was crop design that ended up being bought by BASF in the plant molecular biology space, actually. And then the other one was Micromat. Uh, and we ended up, you know, by buying out those shares, we ended up being the largest shareholder. Uh, this was a company that basically developed the first by specifics, uh, yes. TC engagers. Uh, and that opened up the whole, you know, immunology field, oncology to us. And, and it's something where we have been incredibly active investing. Uh, so this is, a, this is a German company. They, they went public and were independent for a number of years, later acquired yes. by Amgen. But you, right. for, for your investment purposes, it was a success pretty early on, like by going public. Is that right? Yeah, about, no, we, we kept a lot of shares until the very end. So I think Amgen bought them in January or so, 2012. We invested in July, 2004, you know, so eight years or so, five and seven and a half years. Okay, but this is a good thing for you to have on your resume at a fledgling firm. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, uh, the first couple of funds were pretty scrappy. And then, you know, 2009 came, 2008, 2009 came, and, and we, we found a lot of assets that we could have bought at the time, but, you know, understandably, a lot of the traditional fund of funds that we were going to weren't happy to invest at the time. So we unfortunately left a lot, left a lot of money on the table, and we decided, okay, you know, we need to change our investor base, uh, you know, slightly do something slightly different. So we started yeah. fund four. Yeah, oh, wait, oh, nine. I mean, this is the Great Recession, and people right. sometimes forget. But um, you know, when the financial markets were cratering, there was a flee away from high risk sectors, and you know, biotech was <laughs> one of those high risk sectors. So um, big, big um, crash in the market, and lots of companies uh, went away or laid off tons of people, and uh, this took a good four or five years to dig out of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, it was tough. I mean, I won't deny it. There were, there were a lot of things blowing up, to be honest, for us. We, we had a hard time syndicating the way we were used to because we didn't have quite a blind pool fund at the time. But, you know, another lesson that came from that, I mean, and, and people forget that, but you make the best returns when the market is cratering. And... And, and this is really something that we, we decided, you know, never to have to face again, which is we always want to have fresh capital. We always want to be able to invest when there's wobbles in the market. And so we went to a slightly different set of investors. We found four more traditional, you know, uh, endowments, foundations, and so on. It took a while. It took about, you know, two or three years to raise that fund. 
Well, but now, Otello, what, what, you, you say this is a good opportunity to make your best returns. I mean, I, I, I'm guessing like there's two very simple reasons for this. Number one, I mean, you're buying at low prices. <laughs> you're, you're buying low. <laughs> and then number two, you know, you're scientifically trained. And I, I was uh, you know, very actively reporting at this time. And I looked around at the science and I thought, my God, the science is better than ever. Like what's happening here in the early, the, the, the 08 to 2012 frame is way better than it was 10 years previous. So, uh, I mean, are you looking at those same kind of megatrends? Yes. So, well, even more so now, right? Yeah. If you fast forward to, For to sure. now, I mean, it's truly incredible. I mean, uh, the analogy I was using, I think it was an Evercore kind of web, webinar that we did a while back. You know, you got two components, right, in our business. Forget capital for a second, but, you know, you have the hardware and the software. So the hardware is really the technology, right? So, you know, we now have CRISPR, single cell sequencing, you know, approved cell gene therapies as RNA by specific. So lots of modalities. So the hardware has done incredible progress. Just look how much we're learning, right, on, on this pandemic, from this pandemic on, on our immune system. But also the software has improved a lot, right? So over the last, I would say, the, the software is, is the human management component, right? So for a very, very, very long time, the real skill in developing these drugs, these, these molecules, was almost exclusively within pharma or, or very large biotech companies. And I think over the last, you know, I would say 10 years, really, since maybe eight years, since 2012, 13, which really the IPO market started opening in the US back then. I think the, two, the pool of talent has become much more available and much more willing to, to go into startups. You so look around and you see a lot more people who are capable of running with uh, new company ideas than before. That, that's a key factor. Okay. Okay. So you're, you're still by this point, you know, the late aughts and early 2010 frame, you're still focused primarily on late stage product opportunities. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we always been a little bit agnostic. I think there's always been a, a intent to, to have multiple tools at our disposals. I mean, ultimately, with the possible exception of company creation, uh, I mean, you know, the difference between you know, leading a series A or B, investing in a pipe. I mean, they're just instruments, right? The diligence process is the same. A lot of the network, you know, is, is essentially the same. You're looking at diseases the same way. I mean, company creation is a little bit different um, because it requires, you know, a slightly, you know, more complex skill set, certainly on the networking side. But so out of fund four, which was our first blind pool fund, we were still extremely focused on late stage. Um, and we did start what, what I would call more traditional venture investments, uh, including you know, seeding one company because we knew the management team. This was the team from Biovax that had the only oncolytic virus approved and bought by Amgen. And they wanted to do a second generation. So we, we seeded them together with you know, other investors from Biovax. That's and, uh, Replimune, right? That's right, yeah, Replimune. I'm still on the board of the company. Very, uh -huh. very happy camper. Um, so fund four was really the first time we could try other things, right? We had, you know, blind pool capital, we could invest over a few years. Um, and, you know, that worked out really well. We had quite a few successes. And then starting with fund five, I think we did, you know, uh, a lot more kind of real traditional venture. Uh, but at the same time, we always remain agnostic when it comes to the instrument. I think the most difficult thing for us is always 
build a conviction around the disease area and a drug, and then the rest will follow. And I, I think that is truly the case in, in, across our industry. I don't think it's just for us. So the name of the fund way back when, I mean, it's inspired by that end goal of coming up with the product. Uh, and actually, I look at your website today and you very much uh, tout with pride the fact that you've invested in companies that have developed, I guess, 37 products that got all the way through to FDA approval and presumably helped some patients. I mean, some more than others or have achieved more commercial success. But that, that's a lot of products. And that's not usually the way uh, venture capitalists, you know, measure their own success, right? I mean, it's a financial industry. You're, you're looking at, you know, returns, I, IRR and, and cash on cash returns. Um, so how, how have you done in these successive funds? You mentioned that there's some, you know, natural ups and downs. You've, you made a big strategic shift here to go from late stage to this whole continuum from, you know, company creation through late stage. How, how yeah. are you guys... Uh, performing over this uh, 16 year period? So um, it's not that I'm particularly shy about our returns, but we are SEC regulated. So, so I probably cannot provide, because I don't know who, who's listening to this, but I cannot provide detailed financial performance, but you know, come and look at our office in Boston. And hopefully that gives you a proxy on how well the firm is doing. Well, okay, but you, you, you've got a billion dollars under management. Uh, you, you got a number of partners now. Uh, right. How many companies in your portfolio and, and can you at least uh, describe like where you are in terms of the, the tiers of performance yeah. among your peers? Yeah, I think we're doing, you know, at a level comparable to, you know, what are generally seen as very successful firms in our business. I think we had quite a few companies being acquired. That's also on our website. So 37 companies have gone through M&A. 27 companies, I think, uh, gone public. So, you know, again, I can't discuss specific financial information, but I think we've done okay, uh, relatively speaking. Um, and, and I think it's coming back to the number of drugs, because I, I know, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if other people don't put that as an emphasis because maybe they haven't got a number of drugs approved from their companies. But I do think there's a massive correlation. And again, it's, it's, it's generally proven when you look at the very sizable m events over the last you know, decade or, or 20 years, the, the, the very large acquisitions, the very large companies after they go public are, are companies who have successful products. And, and I think there is a correlation between focusing on the end goal, particularly for unmet medical needs, uh, and, and then delivering on successful you know, financial investments. You did just raise your most recent fund in uh, December, um, which is a pretty opportune time given um, that this has been a pretty um, bull run year in 2020. Uh, 430 some million uh, to put to work in biotech companies. I saw you said in the press release, this is the most exciting time to be investing in life sciences in a generation. Why do you say that? Yeah. I believe that obviously. I think it's it's something we mentioned earlier. So is this so again three factors, right? Capital, hardware, and software. Uh, I mean, there's obviously capital available to make the right investment uh, for these companies to push their products forward. That wasn't always the case. Um, so maybe one question: Is there too much capital? That's a separate question. Uh, I think the hardware, as we mentioned earlier, the, the technology convergence and, and maturity is now truly unprecedented. I mean, look, this is 
the first pandemic in human history when we had tens of thousands of virus samples sequenced across the globe. And it's only because of that that we are learning stuff like, okay, maybe you can get reinfected from this, right? So we, we just saw another case today. So, so I think, you know, we are truly from the technological capabilities point of view, um, you know, we have programmable cells that can kill cancer in your body, stuff like that. So it, it is quite unprecedented. I mean, again, from the management depth, I mean, there is still a bottleneck to be very clear. I mean, there isn't nearly enough availability of experienced management teams as they, they, they should be. But, you know, people have learned. There's now a, you know, a large number of people who have learned how to develop these drugs, how to, you know, raise capital, how to take these companies public, how to, you know, do partnerships. And they've been successful once, twice, you know, three times. And, and now they keep recycling those skill set. And there's a bunch of people who are learning from them and then, you know, being mentored into this and, and, and becoming, you know, on their own merits, great management team. So, so I think this, this kind of positive feedback loop has really got to a point where this is a very interesting asset class. I think there's also an overall general interest in healthcare for obvious reasons. Uh, and I think that's a positive thing. So, so these are all kind of hints on, on, I think, where we are in the cycle. So there's the technology, the money, and the people. They are all pretty well aligned. And, and I guess I would probably add, too, there, there's not an excess supply of specialized firms like yours um, who do a lot of this investing so, uh, or, or do it well um, consistently. You know, there's the arches and the flagships and Third Rocks and, 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 and others, but, um, you know, it's not a super long list. No, I think there's, um, I always like to, and again, I used to invest in this firm. So a number of the people you mentioned are really, you know, personal friends because we've known each other for a long time. Um, one thing that I would make as a comment here is that there's a fundamental difference between tech investing and biotech investing, right? The barriers to entry are completely different, right? In our space versus tech. I think particularly some areas of tech like consumer tech, no offense, but it's necessarily a bit of a networking game, obviously, but also a bit of a spray and pray. I'm gonna try a number of small investments, whatever works, I'm gonna know fairly early and then I can put additional capital I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but I think there's some truth to that. Whereas in our space, I mean, ultimately you need to make a decision on is this drug better than another? And it requires, you know, real skill. Um, and, and to be perfectly candid, I'm, I'm 52 now or close to 52, I guess. And I'm starting to getting good at it now. And it's been 25 years. So there is a, a you know, there's a body of knowledge and experience and, a, a, you know, connectivity as well that you need to build before being really good at this. Um, and that's the pro and the con. It's a pro because, as you said, the barriers to entry are a little bit higher. It's a con because it's really hard to scale these businesses. It's a, it's a true question. How do we scale uh, our businesses? Yeah, yeah. You can't just like drop out of Harvard at 19 and put on a hoodie and like change the world. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's a lot of bright young people and there's, there's definitely like there, there has to be, you know, outlets for them to really spread their wings. But um, like being a startup founder, like actually running the company or, or, you know, starting your own venture firm, that tends to come later and perform better when you 
when you wait to have a little more seasoning. Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit, Otello, about like the current environment. I mean, this year has been, uh, you know, uh, very disruptive to say the least. Uh, there's a whole new way of conducting science. I mean, R&D, that's very collaborative. People talk about this a lot across academia and government and industry. Uh, there's a speed and an openness that we've never seen before. And it really kind of makes your imagination swim with possibilities, I think, doesn't it? About like a new way of doing science that, that has a lot of potential. Uh, what, what are some of the lasting changes that you think might come out of this for the way science gets done and, and maybe the influence that it might have on the, the business model itself? Uh, that's a fascinating question. So I, I do think it's happening in, in multiple levels, but you know, taking academia, right, which is at the end of the day, the, the, the ground level, I see, and again, I, I, I'm in this position of absurd privilege, right? I, I look at science in, in universities like MIT, you know, Harvard and so on pretty much every day, and, and I speak to these amazing scientists every day. But again, so, so I, I don't necessarily think that what's happening in Boston is happening all over the world, but what I see in academia, certainly in places like, you know, US, you know, UK and other countries, is that academia is going much closer to what used to be an industrial endeavor in terms of, okay, I'm not just doing pure theoretical science, I'm actually going much deeper. Uh, academics now happen to have compounds that can become drugs themselves. Obviously, you know, they don't necessarily invest in CMC and so on. But so I see a much more, you know, deep move into let's see where this goes and what the therapeutic applications are. And I think that's a lasting impact. I mean, the DNIH has been doing that for a while, but now I see it much more, you know, across the, the, the playing field, so to speak. I think that will continue. Uh, I think a more macro, maybe looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, a more longer term macro consequence of this is really understanding that you know, fundamental research has a strategic value for, for a country, right? And I think, take the example of immunology, which you know, up until the discovery of the checkpoint inhibitors wasn't that popular as a discipline. And now you look at it, pretty much everything is immunology, right? You're looking at this viral infection and then you look at immunology, you look at cancer and you look at immunology, right? So I think really the emphasis on understanding these very complex dynamics, these very complex organs in our body, these very, very specialized cell types that we now have the tools to describe, understand, and perhaps modify, I think that is an incredible um, you know, uh, jumping point to then you know, have faster therapeutics and so on. And just the sheer number of modalities that are now available that have been validated, right, from cell therapy, gene therapy, siRNA, as we mentioned earlier, so I think these are now tools that before were, were just seen with a you know, bit of skepticism perhaps, and now they're just modalities, they're tools. You know, Pfizer is a gene therapy program, right? So, so, so this is stuff that I think is quite game-changing in its impact. Um, we'll see what happens on the you know, funding of science uh, after you know, this pandemic abates. I do think you know, to make uh, perhaps a silly comparison, I mean, the, the U.S. spends 740 billions a year on, on their, you know, army um, and, and only 30-something billion on the NIH. And then when you look at what this pandemic will have done to, you know, 
budget deficits and so on, I think it's pretty clear to me that this industry has a very strategic role and it needs to be better funded. And yeah. hopefully we can play a role to that. I, yeah. I couldn't agree more, but I, you know, it's worth adding too that 35 billion to the NIH that the United States taxpayer, that, that being me and listeners of this show, that we pay, that is one of the best investments that we make. Uh, basic explorations into um, fundamental workings of biology uh, it pays off in spades, and it is the number one reason, right up, uh, right up there with the FDA and our you know, fr- relatively transparent financial markets, why the United States is the world leader in biotech. Completely agree. That's the reason I moved to Boston. I, I can tell you, I was very happy in Europe, but the, the ecosystem uh, here is, is absolutely exceptional. No question about it. What about some of these other trends? Are, are you having conversations with, you know, your portfolio company CEOs about the impact of, say, telemedicine or virtual trials or other things that, you know, people have been talking about for a long time, haven't really been ready for prime time, but seem to be, you know, forcing some changes to the fundamentals of healthcare? Yeah, I think all of the above. These are you know, pretty granular topics. And, and I think maybe taking a step back, I see this pandemic as an accelerant uh, of a lot of things, uh, not just in the scientific or, or, or biotech investing, you know, areas. I mean, telemedicine, making sure the trials can be run uh, without necessarily, you know, having to travel. I mean, these are, you know, some of the low hanging fruit and I believe they're here to stay. Uh, I do think uh, we, we might see a shift towards more resiliency versus efficiency, right? So more just in case versus just in time. Uh, and that could have consequences uh, on you know, the whole value chain, including manufacturing. So, so I do think we're, we're, we're still in the early innings of the consequences here, um, uh, I think, but, but they are profound. There's, there's no questions about it. And, and we spend a lot of time uh, thinking that through. So digital health, uh, which we actually don't do a lot of, but could absolutely be a winner. Uh, you know, uh, better patient monitoring, uh, you know, also, you know, a more important role for surveillance and diagnostics, which I have to say have been quite neglected in the U.S. healthcare system. Um, I do think the, the, the importance of that is paramount. I mean, I, I was speaking to some epidemiologists a few weeks ago, and they said, well, we had, a, we had a program to sequence all potentially dangerous viruses, and we asked for $4 billion. It would have taken us for, you know, about, about 10 years, and people laughed in our faces. And when you look at the math, $4 billion is a drop in the bucket of what this is going to cost us, right? This is the yeah. third coronavirus epidemic or pandemic in 17 years. So, so I think people are going to have to reprioritize a lot of things. I do hope for a more science-based and fact-based dialogue uh, across the world. Uh, I think that's essential. Um, but, but it is a, uh, and I say this again, from this position of observed privilege that I'm in, uh, us and our firm, it, it is a truly fascinating time we are in and, and the consequences, positive and negative, will be with us for a while, I'm afraid. Last thing I want to ask you, Otello, uh, I know you read widely. Uh, what's a, a, good, a good book that you've read recently that you'd uh, recommend to listeners? Uh, that could be a long list because I do read a bit. Uh, again, with a first name like mine, you're kind of obliged to because people start teasing you when you're six years old because of your first name. But 
But the one book I would recommend, um, if people have time, is The Great Influenza uh, by Barry. Uh, it's a book that has been recently updated. It's about the 1918 pandemic. Um, and, and I reread it recently. Um, and, and there's two things that really hit me. One is how much the science has moved since then, right? I mean, in 1918, people were still kind of contending with the miasma theory of disease versus the germ theory of disease. Obviously, science has moved on quite a bit. The other thing that was actually really shocking, reading about, you know, a public officials' reactions, cities opening, closing, the debates about masks, is science has moved a lot, but human nature hasn't. And, and in a sense, this is scary because, you know, the virus, viruses in general really don't care. I really think it's a healthy, uh, not necessarily super optimistic, but healthy read. Uh, because, again, the, the, you know, history is, you know, always rhymes. I forget who said that. But there is um, there's absolutely something I would, I would encourage people to read. Before you hung up, um, Luke, I wanted to say something, if you allow me, for... 30 seconds. Go ahead. If you, if you look at this, you know, weird life of mine, right? I, I think you look at these random encounters with people, you know, jobs, whatever. We actually had a strategy meeting a few years back within the firm about, you know, the importance of luck in our business. And when you, and I think this applies, I know you're very involved in, in you know, opportunity and, and making sure the barriers are removed. And, if you dissect luck, right, uh, forgetting blind luck, so I, I was blind luck in a sense, unlucky in, in being born to a nurturing family that allowed me to get educated and, and let me make our choices, which is you know, more than most people have in their lives. But if you take luck, it's, a, it's opportunity, right, something that presents itself, then is a recognition of that opportunity, and then finally the capacity of acting on that opportunity. And, and you can maximize each of these elements, but it's super important to stress the role of education and network connectivity in, in maximizing that luck. And I think I can testify to that from a very personal point of view. And this is, for me, an important topic because I know education in this country is, is expensive, but I think to, to provide people with opportunities and, and to improve their luck in life. Uh, that is an essential component. And, and this is something that we all need to strive to provide more of. You know, that's a really interesting observation there, Otello. And I'm just riffing here, but um, it reminds me of uh, when I was doing my homework on before this episode and I saw on LinkedIn that uh, you and I happen to have 2,500 or so uh, <laughs> connections in common. And my, my initial thought was, wow, that's a big number. But also, it, it probably just means a couple of things. One, we've had a, a long history in, uh, in shared interest in these subjects in biotech and um, have been avid users of the platform, but then also conscious about cultivating that and getting to know people who are experts and brilliant in all kinds of different domains across biotech. And now, I mean, I don't have a PhD. I come from the rural Midwest. I mean, I have a, a lot of things that are not really in common with, with your background, but um, I, uh, I, I think there is, there is something to 
consciously cultivating those opportunities. There were people who opened doors for me. I try to open doors for other people uh, and, um, and create opportunities where like the puck can come to me. And, and yeah. I, can meet, I can meet people like you at Eugene Scarlett's uh, fundraising event and have that bright idea that, gee, maybe I should ask this guy to write for Timmerman Report. And then boom, like you start like exploding onto the scene and writing interesting articles. And you know, this, this, is, what, this is kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, it's, you know, I'm going to tell something that a lot of people are going to find hard to reconcile, but um, I, I, I don't want to get metaphysical, but, you know, we all live this, in this Brownian motion of interactions, right? We all meet people and so on. But there is a method and a, and a kind of, you know, uh, you know, method in terms of organizing the chaos uh, and, and hopefully make it productive to you, to your community, to your colleagues. So, so the two things are not mutually exclusive. I think we all kind of live in this kind of bumping around of, of interactivity with people. Yep. But there is a way to make it, you know, productive and, and systematic in a sense. And again, you mentioned LinkedIn, which I think both you and I spend a lot of time on. Uh, but it's also important to have that openness of mind. I was actually incredibly introvert as a, you know, as a kid and, and I had to work at it. So it's doable. Um, and I think it's important because opportunities need to come from those constant interactions. Really interesting conversation. Otello Stampacha, thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Luke, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>